Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. The last few weeks we've been looking at the first few chapters of Genesis. And in particular, we, we finished the first chapter and we saw of how the focus of that first chapter was about God, Elohim, the, the sovereign creator. It focused on his power and how each day he created something and in six literal days of how God, the sovereign creator, made this whole entire universe. And then a few weeks ago, we started in chapter 2, starting in verse 4 particularly, and how the focus then changes from God, the sovereign creator, to Lord God, to Yahweh, the, the personal God, where there's an intimacy now slowly being unraveled where God's care and provision for man is seen particularly in the second chapter. And we have seen that even before God created man, that it was a perfect world, not affected by the fall. And we saw how God intimately created the man. And then beyond that, last week we saw how God made a special garden for man in Eden, a garden that had beautiful trees and all the, food, all the trees that supplied all the food that man needed. In fact, even provided the tree of life whereby man could eat of that fruit of that tree and continue to sustain his life forever. And then we also saw how God has provided this, this river, this source of life, so to speak, that then flows out into the four corners of the earth and essentially becomes a blessing to the rest of the world. And how, in one sense, this garden represents what's going to happen in the new heavens and the new earth. So in all this, we're seeing God's abundant provision for man so that man would have no need. It shows of how God cares for man. And this morning, in the passage we're going to look at, we're going to particularly look at God's provision of the woman. And in that, we're going to look at how God makes this woman and how there's distinctions that are made between the man and the woman, but at the same time, there are differences and how that should encourage us to see how God has Uh, made these differences in the man and woman and how there's blessedness in living that way. And so by, as we look into this passage, again, I've broken down this passage into three parts. And let's just look at, first of all, in how God provides uh, the woman. First, the declaration of God, that's in verse 18. What he declares with regards to the state of man. Look at verse 18 with me. It reads, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone, and I will make him a helper fit for him. Now remember, at the end of each day, 
You know, we've already seen this in chapter one. God would evaluate everything and, and, and basically say that it was good. Now, this is the sixth day. Remember, all of what's happening in chapter two is the sixth day that zoomed in. We're getting more details of what's happening on the sixth day. But it's not the, this particular passage as we're looking at it, it's not the end of the day as yet. God hasn't finished all his work. So God looks at man and he says, it is not good that he is alone. Now the term not good, it's not so much the idea that it's morally bad or even evil, but it's more the idea of incompleteness. In the sense that God's purpose is not yet complete. The state of man being alone is not the complete purpose of God for man. Now someone might say, but I mean it says man's alone, but man's not truly alone. I mean he's, man has a perfect relationship with God and so God was there with him. So he's not truly alone, is he? And I would say, yes, that's true. But that's why I think we need to understand what God is saying here, that even though God was there with man and there's this perfect communion with God and man, it is God himself who looks at man being alone in the garden and says, this is not good. You see, in the way God has created man, Man was created to have a relationship with God. But not just a relationship with God. God created man also to have relationship with other human beings. God didn't create man to be a solitary being, but he created man to be a social being. Think about God for a moment. Just in, the, in who God is. God is one being, yet he's not a solitary person. We already saw in chapter 1 of Genesis, it hints at the Trinity, you know, when God said, let us make man in our image. And so even though God is one in essence, there are three persons within the Godhead. And there's a wonderful relationship, a, a communion within the three persons of the Godhead. And so God has eternally lived like this in relationship with the three persons of who he is. God is not and has never been a solitary being. And so just like God is himself relational, God has created man to be relational. Part of being made in the image of God means that we are created to have relationships with other human beings. We are not created to be isolated and alone. And so now you, you can understand why when we, you know, during this COVID time and we have these lockdowns, and especially even for extended periods of time, it becomes particularly difficult for us. Because we are created to live in community. Because we are created to have in-person relationships with one another. 
So when, so when someone lives in isolation, you know, rarely sharing their life with someone, just absolute privacy, you know, just secluded life like that, they're going against the norm for which they were created. And that is not good for that person to live like that. In fact, when we come to the New Testament, this principle again becomes particularly relevant for those of us who are believers and belong to the family of God. One commentator writes, quote, Members of the new creation in Christ are not meant to exist on their own either, but they are to belong to the family of God which assembles locally, Hebrews 10.25. Those who claim to be Christians but desire their own company and want to worship in solitude betray a warped view of themselves and a disregard for God's will. The local church is to be a family where the married and the single find true friendship and fellowship in the gospel. End quote. So God created man to be a social being and not to live alone. And you can imagine then the picture here in Genesis 2.18. The whole wide world. Everything is perfect. Nothing is tainted by sin. And Adam is in this beautiful garden, uh, you know, provided for food and shelter and so on and so forth. And there's animals and plants and trees and beauty all around. But Adam is all alone in the entire world. And so God looks at Adam as he's all alone and says, It is not good that he is alone. God's created purpose for Adam is not complete. And so now God now explains what he's going to do to rectify the problem. Look at the second part of verse 18. God says, And I will make him a helper fit for him. God's solution to Adam's aloneness is to create a helper for Adam. You say, why? Because Adam can't carry out God's purposes all by himself. He was not created to be alone. He was created to be in relationship with others and in doing so carry out God's purposes. Adam needs help and therefore God is going to provide a helper. Now this word helper, you know, if we use our modern understanding of the word and read this word, you might think of it more kind of like an associate role. You know, perhaps even a, a, a sort of lesser role. We have helpers in our kids' Sunday school. You know, or we tell our kids, uh, you know, that they're going to be dad's little helper or mom's little helper. And we get the picture of uh, there's this main person and there's this lesser associate, a, a, a helper on the side. More like a subordinate role. But that's viewing this word with our modern eyes. 
See, the word helper here in the text actually does not give any sense of an associate or an inferior role in any sense of what is written here. It really means just helper, someone who helps. doesn't mean anyone greater or lesser. In fact, the, the word helper here is the same word that is used of God. Psalm 55 verse 4 says, Behold, God is my helper. Same word. The Lord is the upholder of my life. Psalm 118.7 The Lord is on my side as my helper. Same word. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. So this word helper simply means that, helper. It is not a lesser role by any means. And the very fact that the word helper is used of God doesn't demean the word. In fact, it gives more dignity to this word. And the crucial role this person, this helper, is going to play for the man that God has just created. But notice, God doesn't just say, I will make a helper for him. Notice again in verse 18, it says, God says, I will make him a helper fit for him. Or more literally, it can be translated, I will make for him a helper as in front of him or, or is opposite of him. See, the, the picture is of Adam standing on one side and an, another person on the other side, a helper in front of him, almost like a mirror image. A helper opposite to him. And the idea here is of both correspondence and being complementary. That the person that God is going to create as a helper for Adam will on the one side, be corresponding to Adam, be similar to Adam. But at the same time, this person is also going to be opposite to him, is going to be complementary to him, is going to be a matching opposite to Adam. You know, think of it like a puzzle, puzzle piece. You know, the two will come together and will be, this helper will be a perfect fit for the man. This helper that God will provide will be equal and similar to the man, but at the same time will be complementary to man. There will be certain strengths and abilities that the helper will have that the man will be lacking in and vice versa. And so in this sense, they will complement each other well. And together with their similarities and their differences, the man and his helper will complement each other, will benefit each other, and will be able to glorify God in a way that Adam would not have been able to if he were all by himself. And what we'll come to see in the next few verses is that this helper is a woman. This is God's provision of a wife for Adam. And together with his wife, Adam will carry out what God intended for him to carry out, which uh, he is called to do. And you say, okay, so uh, 
what is it that Adam couldn't do if this woman wasn't there with him? Well, for one, remember, Adam is called to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. How's he going to do that all by himself if he's all alone? He needs a woman. He needs a wife. But it's not just procreation and sexual intimacy that the man needs the help of a woman. But it's even uh, to share life with intimately on a, on a spiritual level, on an intellectual level, on an emotional level. So he, he needs a, a, a partner that will complement him this way. Now, before we go on to our next point, I want to address something. Because we live now in the post-Genesis 3 world, in, in a fallen world. And it has affected things significantly. So even things like marriage. You know, there are some who will never get married. And living in this post-fallen world, we know that not everyone will have children. You know, there are those who are unable to even have children. So, so what, what does that mean as we're thinking through all this? Well, turn to Matthew 19. Jesus here is talking about uh, the permanence of marriage. You know, that, and he you know, elaborately says how marriage is for life. You know, even if there are difficulties, and, uh, you know, he talks about the fact that essentially divorce is more the exception in very rare circumstances, and it's not something that should be done casually. So Jesus describes all this about marriage and the permanence of marriage, and, and so now the disciples are hearing this, and they respond to him this way in Matthew 19, Verses 10 to 12. In verse 10, first we hear the disciples respond to Jesus. They say, the disciples say to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Now notice Jesus' response to the disciples. He doesn't refute them, but instead he says this. Verse 11, but he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying. What saying? that it's better not to marry, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive, receive it. You see, during those days, marriage and procreation of children, it was just sort of assumed. And so Jesus uses stark language here. You know, he talks about the eunuch really to jar the people, to get their attention, to get them to think about their, their assumptions. And Jesus is essentially saying in this passage that to marry and have children is not for everyone. To some, it is given this way. 
some from birth because of the way they are, they are unable to marry and have children. Others, because of certain circumstance, uh, they are in life, they are unable to marry. And still others, because they want to serve the Lord solely, they decide to not get married and have children. Apostle Paul, he was one such example. I mean, he had a very high calling, and, and for that kind of ministry where he's forever you know, going from place to place and in prison and everywhere else, you know, he was free to serve the Lord in this high capacity, in this full-time capacity, without having to think about whether he would be neglecting his family while he served the Lord this way. And he chose to be single as a result. So if someone is unable to marry or even have children, it's not like somehow they are less in some way. But that's why Jesus says in verse 11, not everyone can receive this, but only to those whom it is given. Which implies that to certain folks this is given. And even though this may not be easy, God gives a special amount of grace to such individuals. Now maybe you've been given the gift of singleness. Now I don't understand that because I, 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 haven't, I don't have that. But if, if you have been given this particular gift from the Lord, then you are freed up to serve the Lord without having to ever wonder about anything else, about family and so on and so forth. Now perhaps you are married and, and God has not given you children. And perhaps while you are continuing to trust the Lord and His ways and what He's going to do about that, we won't know completely but you could also perhaps have this perspective that, that you are also more freed up to serve the Lord than perhaps families with more children. To serve God even more better in this way. See, at the end of the day, whether you are married or not, whether you have children or not, living in a fallen world is still hard no matter what way you cut that pie. But we know that God is wise. And he does only good for his children. And so whatever he has planned for us, we can take comfort in the fact that this is what is best for us, even though we might not always understand it. Now for those of you who are single, and yet desire to get married. You know, it has been said, uh, you know, I've heard it in the previous church that I was part of, and I've heard others say it as well. You know, there's a famous, just a truism, that you are either single for a season or for a reason. Meaning that this singleness, if you desire to get married, is either for a season that is only for a time or it is for a reason. There is a specific reason why you are single. You know, I know many of us who 
amongst us who are single, uh, and we've all done it even in our single days, you know, we're always looking for the, for the best spouse, you know, the, the most spiritually mature, having the best character, perhaps the best looking, and uh, I don't know what else is there in that criteria, and whatever else you can, uh, that may be important to you. But let me ask you this. If you are a single person and desiring to get married, rather than thinking of getting the best spouse, are you making efforts to be the best marriageable person? I mean, to the single men especially, I want to ask, are you taking efforts to grow spiritually and know your God? Because ultimately, you are going to lead your family. Single men, are you taking efforts to die to self and serve others? Because in the marriage, as the head of the home, it is a life of denying yourself every single day and serving your family. That is going to be your role. Are you taking steps to grow in this manner as you serve perhaps your church family even now as you're a single person? Maybe you're growing spiritually, but you know, perhaps you're socially awkward where people or women in general just find it difficult to be around you. Are you taking steps to change that, to grow in your social skills and be that best marriageable person? Maybe you're fine spiritually and you're fine socially, but maybe it's things like personal hygiene, you know, something not in your uh, top agenda. And people generally as a result, again, find it difficult to come near you as a result. Or perhaps it's something else where, where there are certain things that you need to do as a single person. Are you taking steps to make changes in your life to be the best marriageable person. You are either single for a season or for a reason. So unless God has given you the gift of singleness, it is a good thing to be married. And it is a good thing to recognize the things that you need to change on and then go and find a wife. So God makes the declaration as he looks at Adam. He's single all by himself in a beautiful world, perfect, not tainted by sin, in perfect communion with God. And yet God looks at Adam and says, it is not good that he is alone. But you know, instead of making the helper immediately, God does something else. And here we see our second point, the preparation of man in verses 19 and 20. Let me read this. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. 
and whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Now, if you remember from Genesis 1, 24 and 25, we, we saw that God created the land animals on day six as well, but before he created the man and the woman. And then the winged creatures and the birds, he made even before that on day five, and we saw that in Genesis 1, 20 and 21. And this is important to recollect, because in some of your translations, Genesis 2.19 will read, Now out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field. Unlike how the ESV translates it, that the Lord God had formed. Past tense. See, the, the, the grammar there, it can be translated as either formed or had formed. But given the context that the animals were created before man was created, it is better to translate it as the Lord God had formed the animals. So the the animals that God had already made, that's what is being addressed here. God is not creating new animals. The the land animals and the winged creatures that were already made, God now brings to the man. And the man names these animals. Now remember, the, the first man, we looked at this even a few weeks ago. This is the man before the fall. He's super intelligent, way more intelligent and more capable than us. So when God brings these animals to him, his observational skills, as he observes the nature of the animals that are being brought to him, the kind of insight and intuition and and wisdom that he would have and the kind of understanding that he would have and the way he would decipher those things and put it all together in naming the animals accordingly would have been tremendous. See, Adam is not just, you know, in a lackadaisical manner, just you know, thinking of, uh, I'll just name this whatever. You know, I'll, I'll name this Coco and I'll name this Pogo and whatever else. No, he's actually looking at these animals, observing them, and with the wisdom and intellect and everything and the knowledge that God has given him, he is accordingly categorizing these animals and naming them, corresponding to what these animals are. He would have been much smarter and more insightful than any of the zoologists or taxonomists that are present even today. And one of the reasons why God brings the animals to Adam is to familiarize Adam with his responsibilities of exercising authority and dominion over the animals. We saw in chapter 1 that God is the one who names things. He called the darkness night. He called the light day, and so on and so forth. 
And we also saw when we were looking at Genesis 1 that to name something or someone is an act of authority. Only someone who has authority over you can name you or even rename you. Even nowadays, right? When we, when we name a child or when we name a pet or, or, or a company or, or something else, we are showing that we are over that being or thing and therefore we are able to give name to that person or that thing. And in Genesis 1, we also saw that God delegated his authority to the man to be his representative on earth and to exercise dominion and rule over the animals and over the different realms on behalf of God. So this is what's happening here. Just like God named things in chapter 1, Adam, by naming the animals, is reflecting the image of God. He's reflecting the rule and dominion of God by naming the animals as his representative on the earth. And, and, you know, and when you think of the animals that God is bringing to Adam, you know, it's all the land animals and when it says the beasts of the field, it would have included the wild animals. The animals that couldn't be tamed, like the, the lion and even the dinosaur and the rhino and so on. And so what we see in the pre-fall world is that there's a wonderful harmony going on between man and the animals, including wild animals. The animals aren't attacking the man, and man is not attacking the animals. The animals, including the wild animals, are coming willingly to Adam to be named. And it's showing that they're recognizing the fact that man is their sovereign, that man is their ruler, as God has appointed man to be, and the animals are accepting that even as they come toward him to be named. And there's this wonderful harmony going on, even as the animals are recognizing the delegated authority and the rulership of man on behalf of God. You know, at this point, some, you know, some ask the question, but how is it possible, you know, Adam was able to name all these animals in one day? Remember, this is, all the sixth day, all this is happening. Well, I would say this. For one, Adam would have had an incredible stamina and energy that we don't have because he's not affected by the fall. Then his intellect, as we saw, and his memory power and his wisdom would be far greater than ours. And, and then thirdly, he's not, just, he's not naming every single animal. Well, first of all, he's not naming the animals of the sea. It's just the land animals and the winged creatures. And remember, God created all of these animals according to their kinds. And we saw what kind meant, roughly. That you can have a mule, a donkey, and a horse. But they're all one kind. So Adam is really naming the animals according to 
their kind. And unlike the, uh, you know, many varieties of dogs and cats and so on and so forth that we have, you know, there would have been most likely just a small subsect of each kind. Or maybe even just one kind of dog and one kind of cat that Adam would have been naming. Either way, what we can... uh, what we can understand is that this would have been a much smaller number of animals than what we would think as each and every animal that we have today with all the variations that we can think of. So there's a great harmony going on between the animals and man, and man naming the animals is an act of displaying his authority over the animals and showing, his, showing the rule of God and imaging that. But then you have to ask the question, but I thought God just looked at Adam and said, it's not good for Adam to be alone. What does this have to do with that? Verse 20 gives us a clue. Let's just look at it. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But, so there's a contrast there, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Picture this. Adam is reflecting God's authority and rule by naming the animals. And as the animals come to him one by one, you have the lion and the lioness. You have the bull and the cow. You have the male and female eagle. You have the male and female monkey. And as Adam is observing these animals and their nature of each of these animals and naming them according to their kind, he's beginning to see these animals and say, okay, there's a male here, there's a female here, there's a male here, there's a female here. There's a Mr. and Mrs. for all these animals. But for Adam... There is none. There's just him. So while God first makes the declaration that it is not good for man to be alone, God wants Adam to understand his need. He wants Adam to understand this fact as well, that it is not good for him to be alone. And so God in his wisdom does this by bringing the animals to Adam. And as Adam is observing all these animals, he begins to realize he's alone. That there is not a single animal that can be a helper or a companion that's fit for him. You know, some of us have pets at home. Others of us would love to have pets. And we all know that it's universally accepted that the dog is described as man's best friend. Now, while dogs are great and they're particularly loyal and friendly and protective and loving, and other pets too, you know, they provide a kind of friendship. But it's not the same as a human friendship. Animals cannot replace human friendship. 
A dog or any animal cannot be man's best friend. As lovely as those pets may be and as difficult as human relationships can be in this fallen world. This is not how God has designed us to be, to form, uh, find best friends in our pets. And that's what we see here with Adam. Adam observes the animals one by one. And he notices there's not one of them that looks like him or acts like him. Adam would have realized, oh, I'm the sovereign one here. These are lesser creatures. They're not like me. There's not one animal that matched Adam in kind. Not a single animal was found to be a suitable companion and helper fit for Adam, with whom Adam could share his life with on a spiritual level, on an emotional level, on a physical level, on an intellectual level, and together form this this bond and companionship and honor and serve the Lord. There was not one in the animal world. And so God wanted to prepare Adam and make Adam realize his need this way. So that finally, he wouldn't squander the precious gift of the woman that God was going to give to him. That he would learn to prize the value of the woman God's helper that God himself was going to give to him who would be a perfect companion, a perfect fit for him. And now that God has prepared Adam to receive his wonderful gift of the woman, God now creates the woman. And here we come to our last point, the creation of the woman, verses 21 and 22. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So in order to create the woman... God causes Adam to fall into a deep sleep. You know, this is not just any kind of sleep. You know, like, you know, Adam named all those animals and now he's tired and gone to sleep. No, God has especially caused this sleep and it's a, it's a deep sleep. You can think of it as being under general anesthesia before an operation where the person is in a deep state of sleep and is not aware of what is being done. So it's some kind of deep sleep like that. I guess you could call it the first general anesthesia. So the man is put to sleep and he doesn't get to witness the creation of the woman. One commentator uh, gives reason this way. The deep sleep that was caused for man preserves the mystery of the woman's creation and the subsequent surprise at her appearance. 
So God wants to keep the creation of the woman a mystery. And so the man is asleep and God goes on to perform the very first operation, so to speak. He takes, it says that he takes one of the ribs from the man. In fact, this term rib, in every other place in the Old Testament, it's translated as side. In Exodus 25.12, it's, it's used of, to say, talk about the side of the Ark of the Covenant. In Exodus 27.7, it's used of the side of the altar. And every other usage in the Old Testament, this word here, is translated as side. So you could essentially translate Genesis 2.21 as God took from one of his sides, one of Adam's sides. So it's more likely that God took some, some bone and uh, even some flesh. So perhaps it was rib and some flesh. And that's why later, as we will see next week, you know, as Adam sees uh, Eve, he will say, bone of my bone, but he doesn't stop that. And he says, flesh of my flesh. You know, and... And there'll be some people who'll look at this verse and say, look, look the, uh, the Bible is wrong. At least it's scientifically wrong because, because men don't have a uh, you know, lesser number of ribs compared to the woman. Just in case you were wondering, yeah, the, you know, men don't have lesser number of ribs. And they would point to this and say, see, if God is taking out a rib or bone from the side, most likely that's a rib and perhaps some flesh. But that means God is saying that men, all men have less number of ribs. No, the Bible doesn't say that. It just says that he took from the side of Adam, and perhaps he took the rib and some flesh. So while it was true for Adam, that's not going to change anything for the next generation. Think of it like a fractured bone, or like an amputation. You know, if you lose a finger or a, or a foot or even a leg, does that mean then the next generation will also not have a finger or a foot or no leg? No. Nothing has changed in the DNA. That was something unique for that person, but it's certainly not going to be passed down. And so in no sense is the Bible saying, therefore, every man uh, is going to have a lesser rib. It was true of Adam, but not so for every other man. So God takes from the side some bone and some flesh from the side of Adam, and, and with that, he makes the woman. And, and really, the uniqueness of the woman is seen in the way God creates the woman. You know, in, in the pagan religions of Moses' day, you know, none of those pagan religions... They had some sort of creation account. But none of those pagan religions had a creation account, particularly of the women themselves. Why? Because women were looked down upon. But in the Bible and in Genesis 2, we see the value and the preciousness that God attaches to the woman that he has made. God 
personally and exclusively makes the woman. Man is nowhere in the picture. In fact, man is put in deep sleep. So God uniquely makes this woman. And the fact that the woman is made from the rib of the man is also significant. Because it means that the woman is also made of the same stuff as man. She's not in any way inferior. She's not in any way made of some inferior stuff compared to the man. She's not made like the animals. And as we saw in Genesis 1.27, God created both the man and the woman in the image of God. Just like the man, the woman is also a special creation of God. God was as as much intimately involved in the creation of the woman as he was with the man. And God makes the woman equal in her dignity to man and yet complementary to the man as male and female. You know, one of the things to also note is that the woman is not created from the ground. But the woman is created from the man. In fact, 1 Corinthians 11.8 confirms this when it says, For man, talking about the first man, was not made from woman, but woman from man. Meaning, the first man did not come from a woman, but he came from the ground as God uniquely made the first man. And the first woman did not come from another woman, but, the, but came from the first man as God uniquely made the first woman. You know, this again is an argument against the theory of the evolution of man. Along with so many other things that we've seen in Genesis 1 and 2. See, those who believe in evolution, that somehow the man and the woman came about through the process of evolution, will have to wrestle with this truth that says, the first man did not come from a female, but came from the ground. And the first woman actually came from a man. That's what the Bible says. But even more than refuting evolution, the fact that the first woman came from the man, it even begins to set up this biblical truth of the fact that Adam is going to be the the federal head of the entire human race. That every other human being that has ever lived is a descendant of Adam. And the implication of Adam being the federal head, we see some of that in Romans 5, 17 to 19, where it says, just as the one man talking about Adam, as he sinned, his sin brought in death and condemnation to the rest of the humanity. Because he was the federal head. He was the very start of humanity. God had appointed him that way. Now coming back to Genesis 2.22, what we can say is that God created the first woman from the man. And it's hinting at 
Adam's federal headship, but it's also showing the equal dignity of the woman in that she is unique, having the same worth and the same value as man. And when the man woke up, in the last part of verse 22, it says, God brought the woman to the man. You know, I like how, uh, how one commentator uh, you know, gave this picture. He said, it's like God brought the woman to the man like the father of the bride. You know, I think that's a great picture to just have in your mind because it really captures the idea of both the preciousness of the woman given and how the, the man is now to take care of this woman. And ultimately, it shows God's wonderful provision for the man in providing man not just with food and water and a perfect world to live in, but even a suitable companion, a helper fit for him. This woman is a special gift from God, and, and we'll see next week how the man responds as he sees this woman, and how then God establishes the first marriage, and we'll see all of those wonderful things next week. But, you know, before we close, I want you to consider just two particular things from this passage. And the first thing is this, that gender identity is established by God. I know we looked at it briefly at the end of Genesis 1, but I want to emphasize that again. Gender identity is established by God. God is the one who made the man a man and the woman a woman. The man does not become a woman, nor does the woman become a man. These genders are fixed and part of how God created us. It's not something of our preference. It's not something that you and I get to decide for ourselves or something that the society around us gets to decide for us. God alone is the one who gets to decide our gender. And whatever God has decided is the gender that we are born with, either as a male or a female. And Genesis 2 makes this very clear. Where the man and the woman are of equal dignity and of the same stuff, but they're also different. They're complementary to each other. You know, we, we know even, as, even now, as we would look at the man and the woman, we would generally say that the men are physically stronger than the woman. That's how God has created men. The women, on the other hand, would, we would say that they are more compassionate and, and more gentler and, and more, more caring than the man. Because that's how God has wired the women to be. And so when we have the world telling us otherwise that gender is fluid, it's whatever you, you choose to be, it goes against what God has said in his word that God alone is the one who determines our gender and we have no business in trying to alter it because it's something that God himself has fixed. So what, what should we do as believers? I would say this, 
that we embrace our God-given gender and uniqueness that comes with it. That men should not seek to be women and women should not seek to be men, even though this is what is becoming so rampant in the world around us. We should teach our next generation the truth about the beauty of our God-given gender identity. To, to help the next generation recognize that there are differences in the genders that God has determined. To recognize that there is a difference between boys and girls. Fathers, teach your sons from an early age that if they see their mother or sister or, or, or another woman carrying something heavy, to carry it for themselves rather than sitting on their lazy bottoms. That fathers would teach their sons to, to respect women for who they are and recognize the, the gender differences and appreciate them for who they are. Mothers, teach your girls what it means to be a girl and how it is very different from being a boy. Rather than have the world seduce our next generation and have them determine what is truth, when in fact God alone determines truth and he has, this is his created reality. We must, as believers embrace and even cherish our God-given genders. It should never be suppressed. And as we embrace it and cherish it, we are honoring the Lord who gave these gender identities to us. So God has established gender identity. But the second thing also I want you to take away from this passage is that God has also established gender roles. It's not just the gender in itself. There are specific roles that God has assigned to these genders. You see, aside from the attack on gender identity, many people in the world also attack the gender roles that God has established. I mean, we just saw it in this passage, right? As much as the woman is not inferior to the man, has equal worth and value to the man, the man was created as a helper fit for the man. And we know that this is within the context of marriage, and we'll flesh this out even more next week as we look into the the establishment of marriage. But what we can say is that there is a distinct role the the wife plays in the marriage to help the man so that they can together serve the Lord better in a way the man cannot do all by himself. The wife is to be the helper that God has created for the man. And this also implies that the man is the the head of the wife or the head of the home. You know, 1 Corinthians 11.3 makes it clear that the husband is the head of the wife. In fact, the reason then, as we go on in 1 Corinthians 11, the reason the the wife's submission uh, and the acknowledgement of the husband's uh, headship is given uh, a few verses later in 1 Corinthians 11 
And this is what it says in 1 Corinthians 11, 8 and 9. It actually alludes to Genesis 2. The reason why the, the women are to be submissive and acknowledge the, the authority of the husband, the, the headship of the husband. Verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 11, verse 8 and 9. Here's the reason. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So Paul is really using this passage from Genesis 2, saying, yeah, that, that created order where man was created, and then from the man, the woman was created. That also signifies that man is now the head of the woman, that the husband is the head of the wife. And Ephesians 5 is another passage that talks about the, uh, the, the submission of the wife to the husband. And then we also see in 1 Timothy 2.13 that the women are not allowed to teach or preach within a church setting because, again, the idea of male headship within the church is to be recognized. And it's the same reason we don't have women pastors or elders in our church because the, the Bible does not support that idea. So God has assigned gender roles even to the man and the woman in the home and in the church. You see, these roles, they're not assigned by male chauvinists over the years. They're not roles that were constructed by a society that somehow wanted to put women down. Yes, because of sin, men have used their roles to harm and put down the women. And, and women, in turn, in their sin, have rebelled against it and tried to reverse the whole thing. So men, particularly, as, as Christian men, be mindful of your role in the home and in the church that we would not misuse our God-given authority to put down the woman. And at the end of the day, we need to recognize that these gender roles are established by God right from creation. It's not a social construct. And so when we trust God and accept the, the differences our God has given to us in our gender identity and the roles that go along with that and we live according to God's ways, there's going to be blessing. It will always be for our good when we live according to God's ways and ultimately that will give him glory. Yes, the world around us will tell us otherwise. The world will condemn us. But I think one of the things that we can thank God is the fact that even though sometimes we might not function well in these roles, that God is a forgiving God. That that's why he sent his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our wretchedness and our rebellion. And as we remember that, and as we remember how God continues to care for us and love us. Let us embrace 
our gender identities and the differences that come with that. But also let us embrace the roles that he has given us and the, and the fact that even from his word we can understand these truths. And not just understand, God enables us by his power to, to live out these roles. It's not an impossibility. He will enable us to do that. So for that we can be thankful to God for all that he is doing in our life, for the fact that he has opened our eyes to these truths and to the great God he is. And when we live according to his ways, there's always great blessing, and it's always for our good and for his glory. Let's pray to God. Father, we thank you because you are God. You establish reality. You are creator. You establish, you determine what is good and what is not good. And Father, we have the special privilege of even knowing for sure that what you have set up is never to ruin us, but it is always for our good and for our blessing and ultimately for your glory. So Father, help us to embrace these truths. Help us to cling on to these truths even as the world gives us uh, different things, tells us different things, and even condemns us. Help, help us to stand firm in your truth. Help us to rejoice in the fact that we are forever accepted in your sight. And even as we remember that, that we would live out these truths for your glory and for your honor. We thank you for this, Father. And we love you and we give all this and we pray that you would enable us to honor you in all things. For we pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.